Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger. Uh, this is episode 108, and we are thrilled to welcome Bryce Sizemore to the podcast. Bryce, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Kyle? I'm doing excellent. It's a it's a wonderful Saturday morning here in uh, here in northern Wisconsin. It's about 60 degrees outside, and it. I talked with Wilkie last the other night, and he was saying it was still like I remember those times in Houston where it was still 90 degrees in the middle of September. So I'm enjoying. How are things going for you? It's good. It's good. Just uh, early morning um, after I think about our third week back to school. So. A little tired, but we're getting back into the routine, and um, kids are great, so just enjoying the weekend. Awesome, awesome. Well, we super appreciate you coming on the podcast, and, and really what this is for us is is just we're, we're trying to do our part to tell the story of, of what teachers are really doing in classrooms and all the, the great things that are going on around the country. So um, if you could just give us a little bit of your backstory of you know how and why you became a teacher. Yeah, so um, it's kind of funny. When I graduated from high school, you know, I went right into undergrad like so many people did. Um, I was a psychology major, and I loved it while I was doing it, but I also knew at the same time that I was not going to, you know, towards the end of finishing up my degree, I knew I wasn't going to continue with psychology, but I didn't know what I was going to do. So I had been involved with cheerleading growing up, and I started coaching, and love that. I love the um, impact that I was getting to have on kids and just kind of teaching life lessons that went beyond, um, you know, the competition mat, so to speak. Um, And at that time, I was in Florida that uh, an opportunity arose in Dallas. So I moved for a coaching position in Dallas, Um, continued coaching for a few years, loved it, but knew that I wanted to make a a bigger impact and have, um, honestly, more steady hours. Um, so I went uh, back to grad school um, here at SMU and got my master's in education, and I've been teaching ever since. So are you originally from or from Florida then, I should say? Uh, yeah, uh, kind of. So my parents are in the military, so we moved around um, every few years. But I did go to high school and undergrad in Florida, so um, if I had to call somewhere home, I'd call Florida home. Right, right. So... Uh, you know, with that, do you, do you have a favorite teacher like that you had over time? Yeah, I do. Um, so just kind of thinking about that, um, I always think back to Mrs. Kelly, who I had in eighth grade, and that was the year where they separated, um, earth and space science. So we had one teacher for the first half of the year, um, that would teach space science. And then we'd switch to another teacher for science for the second half of year that taught, um, earth science and Mrs. Kelly she was awesome. And I, when I think back, she's my first teacher that I remember so much from that classroom. You know, I, a lot of people talk about like, Oh, I love my kindergarten teacher, my first grade teacher. And I don't remember a lot of that. Um, I just remember Mrs. Kelly and I felt like she was the first teacher that got to know me. Um, I also feel like she was, she was a new teacher. It was her first year. I do remember that. Um, she was very young. And I just felt that everything she did was so hands-on and so engaging and it just made me love learning. And I think, you know, that was that kind of pivotal time for me that made me love school. Right. Right. I'm, I'm kind of with you. I didn't remember much up until probably like sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And that was probably because for some reason, the people at my school put me and my three best friends all together in our sixth grade class. And we were, we were naughty. 
we were <laughs> we were we were super naughty, but you know, you live and live and learn. So, you know, from your your perspective, Bryce, what's what's the vet, you know, like you said, Mrs. Kelly, but what's the value of a really great teacher? What you know, what impact can they have? Oh my goodness, I just I and kind of keeping her as an example, I just think the power of a great teacher is just kind of exponential because a great teacher is going to impact those, you know, 20 kids or 24 kids or however many kids you have in that one year. And, you know, if you make that great impact, then those kids are going to continue on life and they are going to continue to impact everyone that they meet and they interact with. And I just feel like it's kind of this growing thing and it's just, it's truly exponential and can make such a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. And, and that's just crazy, you know, cause I, I taught middle school and high school, you know, so you're seeing 90 to a hundred kids yeah. every day. And I always kind of wonder, especially now more what the elementaries are like when you're, you know, you have the chance to have 20 to 25 kids and you have them all year. But um, it's, we were talking about this a little bit before we recorded. I, can you talk a little bit more about, the, the school you were in that, that had the aesthetic committee and, and was very bare bones. And, and what's really interesting is the fact that, that you couldn't put any personal stuff up on the walls. And I just wonder your thoughts on that, because you, know, you were talking about how Mrs. Kelly got to know you. And I think it's such an important part of teachers allowing kids to get to know them. So could you talk a little bit more about what that was like? Yeah. So, um, the school I was at previously, it was a great school. Um, I loved my time there. And they just, um, it was a Scandinavian kind of design school. So a lot of natural wood and things like that kind of Reggio Emilia, Emilia inspired. And they just truly believed that the classroom was kind of the child space. And so, you know, you'd have, you know, your calendar and those different things up when school started, but they really valued having the kids create everything that went up on the walls. Um, and I could see, you know, during my time there, the kids loved that and they felt that it truly was their classroom. Um, not to say that there weren't challenges for me because, you know, I wanted to, you know, kind of have that Pinterest-worthy classroom that I could, you know, post on social media and, you know, all these other teachers that I'm seeing do that. Um, that was a little bit of a challenge for me. And I never felt like, you know, I really owned the classroom. But I guess there's, you know, there's a lot of pros to that too because the kids, you know, they felt at home and felt it was their space. Do you think it got in the way of building relationships with your kids that they didn't get to see those things? Because it, it just always seemed like to me, it, I think back to a story of when I was in college, I had a professor who said he didn't wear a wedding ring because, well, he was a professor at the college, but he also taught at the local high school. He said he didn't wear, wear a wedding ring because that was none of his kids' business, whether he was married or not. And I was just like, it's so anti, you know, what I wanted it to be as a teacher and, and what it seems now to where you're really building a relationship. Do you feel like, do you feel like that? Or maybe the question is, how did, how did you let your kids get to know you when they're not, you know, seeing some of those things that, you know, are, are more you in the classroom? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think I kind of had to be a little more intentional about that because, you know, my personality wasn't really, you know, reflected in the classroom. It was to a small extent, you know, the way I organized things and all that. But um, 
we did a lot of social emotional work at the school that I was at. So we, um, we actually had a block. So we were on a six day rotation instead of Monday through Friday, we were on a day one through six rotation. So, you know, you might start over on a Tuesday or a Thursday. Um, and that kind of blows a lot of people's minds to hear that six day rotation. Um, but during that rotation, we had an hour block that was called social emotional. And so that entire hour, Every um, rotation was just devoted to social emotional learning. And it was about getting to know each other, um, you know, on top of our social studies curriculum too, but really just getting to know each other. And I would share a lot then about myself to kind of get the kids to share about themselves and feel comfortable with themselves. Um, And we did a lot with kind of responsive classroom, morning meeting type stuff. Um, And I would share during those times too. So even though it wasn't like up in the classroom as a constant, you know, they knew my dogs, Petrie and Carson. Um, They knew who my husband was. Um, They knew that I lived by the lake because I'm always going to the lake. Um, So I feel like we were able to still kind of have that connection. So so you did social emotional learning every day or just one hour per the six days? So it was kind of like you might have like a literacy block. We had that social emotional block once every six days. Um, but then we would also have our um, morning meeting every morning where we're doing a lot of responsive classrooms. So we would fit it in there too. And that was about 30 minutes a day. Um, it wasn't only social emotional at that time, obviously, but right. yeah, it was nice to have that kind of hour just devoted on like, let's talk about how we solve problems with friends today. <laughs> so I, I do have to ask, I, I'm a little blown away by the six day rotation. Do the, how long does it take the kids to get used to it? Um, so the kids at that school, um, most of them start uh, at pre-K three. So by the time I got them in kindergarten, they'd been doing it for two years. So they were super, super used to it. And, you know, you'd say today's a day one, which was also assigned a color for the younger kids. So it's a red day and then an orange day and a yellow day and a green day. Um, and you just say what color day it was and they knew the schedule. Um, and sometimes better than I did that. It was an adjustment for me more so because I did not grow up that way. Um, but for them, it was just all they knew. Yeah. Right. Right. Cause I, I worked at some schools where they did a day B day. So it was just a steady rotation of a day B day. The, the intermediate that I worked at where I taught sixth grade, it was like they had blocks of English and math every day, but then they, their, their science and social studies blocks flipped. I was just teaching social studies. So I had a set of a day kids and a set of B day kids. And they, it seemed like they had a tough amount of time with that. But I, I mean, I think it's, if you can do it, I, I think it's a really good, I, I'd be interested to see how it worked in practice. I think I would screw it up. Cause I, I feel like, I just feel like, is it a third, is it day three? Is it day six? So, but, um, to, you know, to kind of continue going on, I, I know a, a big part of what you do is, is project-based learning. So, um, I know it's a lot of people think it sounds good, but a lot of people fear that it's just anarchy when you give a kid project-based learning. So what are some of the parameters you set for your students when you assign them project-based learning? Yeah, so I'm new to second grade this year. So I'm still kind of, um, the school has some project-based learning that they're doing, but at my previous school, um, one of the things I was kind of brought on board for the kindergarten team was to incorporate project-based learning. They didn't have a lot of it at the time. And so we started off and our goal was let's do one project-based learning unit this year because I mean, it really is a lot if you sit down and really go through the planning tool um, and plan everything out beforehand and it's truly cross-curricular. It it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy um, on the teacher's um, behalf beforehand. But I think 
you know, kind of taking that time to plan it out um, really does make make it successful for the kids. So um, it's definitely not a free-for-all. I can think of one project-based learning unit that we did um, towards the end of the year in kindergarten was designing a zoo exhibit that would kind of resemble um, the natural habitat of that animal. So we learned about um, different, I guess, classes or orders of animals. Um, so like reptiles, amphibians, all of that. So it was very structured during that time, but they knew that they were going to be picking an animal um, and that we were going to go to the zoo. We were going to take pictures of that animal's habitat and that we were going to come back and try to redesign that habitat to look more like the wild. Um, and so we built that into math. We were talking, um, you know, parameters of that. We, we built it into social studies, obviously science, um, literacy time. So I feel like the parameters didn't really have to be set because the kids um, were so bought into it. They were so invested. They knew that, you know, hey, I love flamingos. I'm going to pick a flamingo. And all my research is going to be about that. And, you know, I say research. I mean, kindergarten research. Um, but they were so into it that um, I just thought it was some of the best learning that happened in my classroom. Wow. I mean, it, it always amazes me, like, especially what the little kids are capable of when you give them something that's like, that they're super into because I, I've, I've never, I've never, I, I substitute taught one day of second grade, my first year out of college and the kids ate me up and I like never substitute taught in the elementary or even like tried to teach the elementary, but I'm, I'm so, so, um, so impressed with what they can do. So how long of a time frame was that the, the designing a zoo exhibit project, like start to finish? Um, so that entire unit, we just called it kind of our zoo unit. Um, oh my gosh, that was probably a good seven week unit. Um, and like I, like we weren't doing just that. That wasn't the only thing we were doing all day, every day. Um, mm -hmm. but it was like a heavy thing that we were doing. So during literacy, you know, basically for a whole rotation, we were doing, you know, amphibians and then the next rotation we're doing reptiles and we would get, we got through six, um, orders, I guess. And, then we went into kind of that zoo design phase um, and that probably planning, building, visiting the zoo, that was probably about two weeks of that whole um, unit. So it was definitely, it sounds like a, a long unit, but the kids were so into it that it didn't feel that way. Right. Right. So if you're going to get, I mean, if you're going to give advice to a teacher who is doing it, maybe say with like fourth or fifth or sixth graders, how do you think you would have to, to scale it or change it a little bit to, to make it work? Um, hmm. So I think with the older kids, um, I think definitely still finding something, obviously, you know, it's got to be um, meeting standards is first thing. So you got to, you know, look at your standards and figure out how can I make this work out for my kiddos? But then also at that age, you're probably switching classrooms. So um you know, you don't get the luxury of having the kids all day where you get to kind of rearrange your schedule and say, hey, for two hours today, we're going to do this. Um, so I think that's even more so team planning than what we did, even though we did do a lot of team planning. Um, but I think those teachers having to work together um, to make sure it's a successful unit. So it's not just this one teacher is doing it and then, you, you know, you transition to your other teachers and it's, you know, it's not happening in those classrooms. I think for it to be truly successful, it's got to be a, you know, kind of a team effort for the kids. Right. So then I, I've heard the term integrated unit before, but could you explain a little bit about what integrated units are and, and what are some of your favorite examples or ones you've seen created? 
Um, so I think an integrated unit, it's just, you know, where you're not having necessarily, you know, now we're in our math block, now we're in our reading block, now we're in our social studies block, it's trying to kind of bring all of those things together. And I think project-based learning is great for that. Um, so, you know, another example, we did a solar system um, project-based learning unit, and the kids were basically tasked with designing a travel guide for travelers who are traveling from the earth to the moon. And so we had to talk about all the different things that we're going to see as we're traveling from the earth to the moon. Because one of the, um, I believe it's in next generation science standards, one of the kindergarten standards is, you know, what can we see in the sky? So you have to, you know, you're talking about the stars, you're talking about the sun, you're talking about the moon. And so we really kept it in that, those parameters. We didn't talk so much about the planets, even though, of course, as soon as you start talking about the solar system, the kids are like, oh, Saturn and Neptune and all of this. Um, so they get super curious about all of that. Um, but I think, being able to bring all of that in, like during math, we might have, um, we might be working on story problems. And so our story problems are about um, space and about um, the sun or the moon, different things like that. So I think it sounds like a lot, but it's, it's not, I'm trying to think how to phrase it. It's not too much work once you kind of get into it. And that's just the way that you're planning. Um, it just makes more sense. And I feel like it's actually easier than kind of a disconnected, um, you know, unit approach. So, you know, what, what is the importance of, for you of really like fostering your kids' creativity and imagination? Because it seems like a lot of what you've done is, or what you do really like gives them the opportunity to do that. Um, I think to me, that's everything. I feel like, you know, thinking back to my school experience, I feel like it wasn't until I was in middle school that I felt truly um, comfortable to be creative and to like do things the way that I felt they should be done, you know, as a young person. And I felt that's when, you know, I kind of met that teacher, you know, Mrs. Kelly, that really fostered that. And so that's what I try to do with my kids. I try to think back and, you know, I don't want to put them in a box and be like, Hey, this is the only way that we can do this. I want them to feel free. Like, you know, if the end product is this, you know, I, you need to show me that, you know, X, Y, and Z, I don't care how you do it as long as you show me um, that, you know, you've learned the skill or you've mastered the skill. And I think that, again, that just, you know, they have so much buy-in because they feel that they're taking ownership of their learning. So I think, you know, fostering that creativity is just kind of everything for me. Hmm. So then, you know, kind of along that same line, why is it so important to get the learning into students' hands? Because it, it sounds like also, too, that a lot of what you do is hands-on where the kids get to see and touch it and make things. What's... What's important about that as well? I just, I think that you're hitting a whole new kind of learning style when you've got that hands-on learning. I think these days that, you know, we're battling so much with technology, like kids, you know, they're at home and they've got this kind of like instant response all of the time, you know, with their, when they're on their iPads or they're on their parents' phone or they're playing a video game or whatever it is, you know, that's just kind of the world we live in. And so you have to, I think, as a teacher, kind of take a step back from maybe how we grew up in school and those hands-on experiences where the kids are manipulating. And I just feel like it, they get so invested in it. They get so excited. And, you know, I feel like behavior problems are cut down when you've got those kind of hands-on experiences. I feel like they're making their own connections to the learning. It's not just, you know, this is, you know, what you need to learn. They get to make their own meaning as they're working through the units with those hands-on experiences. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a big part of what, what we do. And, you know, with younger kids, I feel like, you know, you kind of have to do that to keep them engaged. Right. Right. 
and you know, I grew up in Wisconsin, but my first job was in Houston and I was so blown away by, by how much is in the teaching standards, like for the state, do you ever, do you ever run into spots where you just are like at that crossroads between like getting all the content in or getting all the curriculum done and wanting to do like the, the, the project-based learning stuff? Cause I knew that like, I know from my experience, it was really hard for me to try to find a balance between getting everything they wanted me to get done, done. Cause I was teaching eighth grade history. So that was a, a star tested curriculum. So do you face that problem? Um, I think it's definitely a challenge because um, you've got all these standards that you're supposed to teach the kids throughout the year. And, you know, you are expected that there's going to be some level of mastery for all of those different standards. Um, but I, that's why, you know, whenever I present on project-based learning, I always tell teachers, you know, start with one unit a year and t- really take a look at your standards because you can fit so many standards into one unit if you really, you know, kind of think about it and dive in. And it really is overwhelming if you're like, okay, my whole year is going to be project-based learning. But if you yeah. just start with, I'm just going to do this one unit this year, you know, and it might be a month long and then the rest of the year is going to be kind of what I'm comfortable with. It's a good starting point. Um but I, I, I do think that it is, it's a hard thing, but I always kind of approach them to like, the standards are kind of a guideline. You know, you have to teach those standards, but it doesn't mean you can't teach beyond those standards. Right. So I always try to remind teachers, like, kind of go beyond what that prescriptive um, standard is telling you to do. And, and one more, you know, I, I, I want to ask you about classroom management, but one more question on, on the project-based learning, because I mean, I'm sure you have the kids who are just like gung-ho about it but I'm sure you probably also have some of the kids that are really, you know, shy about it or, or not as engaged. So how do you, how do you work with and, and kind of bring those kids along as well that maybe aren't comfortable or, or whatever it would be uh, with the project-based learning? Sure. So I think, um, and it's something that a lot of, I think you see a lot in, you know, K through second anyways, is um, just working in small groups. So, you know, the kids are working at maybe different centers. They've got their different tasks that they're trying to complete while the teacher is able to meet with a few students at a time. You know, maybe you've got four or five students and you're working through a small group. So I do a lot of that, especially during project-based learning. Um, you know, sometimes I'll even break our science block up into different centers. And so there's four centers and one of them is with me so that I can kind of work with those kids one-on-one right. and really the heart of, you know, there are things about this that we can find that you like. So let's, you know, let's take a step back and figure out what it is that you're interested in so that we can, you know, get you excited about it. Perfect. So in, in your, and I'm really, I'm actually more interested to hear your answer to this question after learning about that schools and the schools you've been in, how do you define classroom management for the, the kindergarten for a second grader? Oh goodness. Um, So I think the biggest thing is I kind of approach it as a community. So we do a lot on building community throughout the year. And I think that there's just certain expectations, you know, even out in the real world, when you're part of a community, you know, this is how members of this community act. And so we talk a lot about that, you know, we're in this classroom together um, and we all want to love it, right? We want to have a great time. um, We want to have fun. And we talk about, we have so much fun and we have a great time when we are kind of meeting those expectations um and i think that that's just huge we did i've done a lot with um my mind's gonna go blank um oh my gosh uh 
there's a um, an approach to classroom management, and my mind is blank right now on what it is, um, the name of it. But basically, um, it's not kind of punitive. It's a lot of, you know, let's talk about, um, you know, you made this choice. Everything's a choice, right? Um, you made this choice. And, you know, these are the kind of consequences that come from making that choice. And so that's what's going to happen this time. But next time, what's a different choice you could make? And maybe these are the outcomes of that choice. And so just getting kids to realize that um, really everything they do, you know, has kind of that, you know, consequence, whether it's good or whether it's bad, it's got, there's going to be an outcome of that. And I think that it's hard at first um, and the kids, especially, you know, when I was in kindergarten, it's hard to get them to realize that. Um, But working throughout the year, you know, by the end of the year, it's kind of running itself. You know, they're like, Hey, you know, to their friends, like that wasn't a good choice. And, you know, now this is going to happen or whatever. And they almost kind of like, I don't want to use the word police, but almost kind of like police themselves. And um, it just feels like kind of a healthy community. So do, do the, do like your, do your daily routines and like procedures, does that fit into classroom management for you? Or is that kind of a separate entity? Cause that's always what I've wondered with elementaries is it, it seems so. And, and this is from afar. I, like I said, I've never taught elementary that it's just like, there's a routine for literally every possible scenario that you could face. So is that, is that with your classroom management or is that kind of a separate entity? I think that's definitely part of it. Um, you got to have those routines. Otherwise, the kids might, you know, something as simple as lining up. You know, there's maybe a hundred different ways that, you know, a kid could line up. Thank you. Um, sorry, our, our coffee machine. We're <laughs> out of coffee this morning, so it's been a... Don't worry. Uh, um, but I think that, you know, so like there's a hundred different ways a kid could line up, whether it's rolling across the floor to get into line or whether it's doing jumping jacks across the classroom to get in line. And so just talking about like, hey, in this classroom, when I asked you to line up, this is how I expect it to be done. I think that's huge. And I know a lot of teachers spend so much time at the beginning with routines. And I want to say that I do teach a lot of routines at the beginning of the year, but I also don't probably do as much as a lot of teachers do because I feel like it's also like you have to be in that moment I feel like to teach a kid like you could teach a kid 45 routines at the beginning of the school year but if they're not really doing that routine at that time they're going to forget it because they're not practicing it because they're young so I think it's kind of you know always evolving um throughout the year we're practicing like hey this is how we're going to do this this is how we're going to do that and I think just setting clear expectations is the big thing with that and and I wondered you know too with you you, you said you try to not make it punitive. So I, I guess how, how does, like, I know that the kids get consequences, but what exactly do you mean by that? Cause it, it seems like to me, it sounds like you're, you're not doing that. Well, you didn't do this. Here's like a consequence, like that very authoritative kind of approach. So how do you, how do you do that? Especially, you know, or, or create the environment in which you can do that. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is having conversations with the kids. I mean, even though they're young, you got to pull them aside like one-on-one and be like, hey, I saw that you did this. And, you know, even at that age, you might have a lot of kids that maybe they're scared to admit that they did that. And you have to get them, you know, you're teaching them that like you have to own up to what you've done. You've got to be honest, you know, this happened. And, you know, there may be a consequence. Like it may be that, 
Um, you know, I need you to write an apology letter to that friend. Like you did this to that other child and I need you. And I feel like the consequence has to be logical, right? Like if a kid, you know, I don't know, did something unkind to another friend, like having them sit out of recess is probably not a consequence that really fits into what they did, but having them write an apology letter or actually have to sit down with that friend with you kind of as a coach and make them talk about it. I think that's something that we did a lot is having them like, tell this friend how that made you feel when he or she did this. And then, you know, that child can respond and getting them to be able to conversate because, you know, the power of using words, I think is just so big, but um, I think finding those consequences that need, that's why, you know, some teachers have like set, like, if this happens then this is the consequence, if this happens, this is the consequence, but I think you have to take it, you know, on a case by case basis. Like this is what makes sense. And I think also getting parents involved, um, I'm really quick to send an email or pick up the phone and call parents and say, hey, this happened today, you know, with little Johnny or whatever. And, you know, we talked about this. And if you could reinforce that um, lesson at home, then I'd really appreciate it. And just having them on board is super powerful. Right, right. All right. So I definitely want to be respectful of your morning because I know you got a lot going on. So we'll ask you a couple couple quick wrap-up questions. So in, in your opinion, Bryce, what's, what is one thing that every student should be taught? I think probably the biggest thing that we can teach kids, I mean, we've got the standards, we've got to teach them, you know, reading, writing, science, all of that. But I think the biggest thing is how to be a caring and empathetic person. Um, Because at the end of the day, we are really charged with creating kids or helping kids learn how to be good people. Because at the end of the day, they're going to grow up and they're going to be the people out in the world making decisions in a few years. And we want to make sure that we've taught them how to be caring and how to think about others, because if they're going from that mindset, um, you know, I really feel like only great things can happen. And I know we talked about, um, you know, project-based learning a lot to start, but if, if you could give a teacher who was trying to do um, project-based learning and they were really struggling one piece of advice, what would you give them? I think the biggest thing is just to hang in there. Um, it's, it can, it can be hard. It can be daunting at first. I think once you've gotten into it and you've gotten your feet wet and, you know, you tried that one unit during the year, um, then it really makes a lot more sense. But, you know, I've been in professional developments where I'm, you know, talking to teachers and I'm like, you know, this is how you kind of plan for project-based learning. And, you know, you just have that kind of wide-eyed, like, oh my God, you want me to do this now on top of everything else that I'm doing. Um, but just take small chunks and I think make it fun because at the end of the day, I think if the teacher's not having fun with what they're teaching then the kids are not going to have fun learning what you're teaching, um, just keep everything fun, you know, find a mentor. I always recommend that teachers, um, whether it's someone in their school, sometimes it's not someone in your school. Sometimes it's someone, you know, within your district or you find someone on social media that you just connect with and you follow them for ideas or what have you. Um, but Yeah. Awesome. And, and, and along that vein, if people want to connect with you and, um, you know, follow what you're doing, um, wh- what are the best ways for them to do that? Um, so I'm pretty active on my Instagram page. Um, it's just at the teaching Texan. Um, I share a lot on there. Uh, there's a lot on my blog as well. The teaching Um, I can't share everything that we're doing in the classroom just because, you know, I'm kind of pulled in a lot of different directions, but I do try to share a lot. And if, you know, I post a picture about, some lesson and people, you know, a ton of people are like, Hey, you know, I want to know more about that. Then I always try to do a follow-up post to kind of share more about that. So those are kind of the two bigger, biggest ways to kind of connect. 
Awesome. Well, like I said, I super appreciate you taking a few minutes this morning to uh, have a conversation with me for our podcast. And the final question we've got for you is, you know, when it's all said and done, what do you want your lasting legacy to be? I think it's kind of um, beyond me a little bit, but obviously I want, I want to have a positive impact on the kids that I'm teaching. I want them to love learning. I think that's my biggest thing. And I'll tell parents that, you know, at back to school night when I meet them, like, if anything this year, I just want my kids to love being at school and to love learning. Um, Cause if you don't love school when you're in kinder first, second, you know, when are you going to love school? Right. Um, so I think that's a big thing. And I think, I hope, you know, I do share a lot on social media um, about what I'm doing. And I just hope to kind of inspire other teachers or to help other teachers feel that they can do it too. Um, just so that they know that, you know, it's possible for them. Awesome. Well, Bryce, thanks for uh, taking some time this morning and coming on our podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me.